Revelation chapter 20. We began this chapter last week. You'll notice that it says Revelation 20, verse 3 and following. Uh, I do know how far we're going to go, but I'll let you guess. I forgot to change it. It's actually through verse 6, so uh, that's what it'll be tonight. Verses 3 through 6. So we began in this, in this particular chapter last week. And I'm not saying that I received some great revelation or, you know, some light shone through the roof or the ceiling or whatever. But I was stirred very much in, in, in the course of this study, in one particular verse of our, of our study tonight, that made me realize how serious our lives are in Christ, in this world, as we see the day of Jesus approaching. The struggles that we see happening in the Middle East today, we've talked about a lot of them over the last two and a half years in which we've been studying this book of Revelation. And as we're coming now to a close... I truly believe that the Lord is wanting to awaken us even more to the seriousness of things that are happening this very hour in the Middle East. Depending on the news sources that you may use, I had to check really through a lot of them. In some, you have to dig really deep to find some of these issues. In others, they're out out front where they should be. But this situation that's happening in in the Middle East, especially in in Iraq or in the, uh, the vicinity of Iraq, and what was started by this group called ISIS or ISIL, You know, the, the Islamic states and, 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 uh, and also involving Syria or what they call the Levant. That's why it's some, sometimes ISIL. But what is happening here is, is truly of, of biblical proportions. When you read about the torture and and the, what they call today the Holocaust of Christians in that area. We may not be getting the full picture, but if we're getting a little bit of the picture, then we are seeing that there are things happening there now that the Lord has told us were going to happen in the last days. The beheading of Christians. The beheading of children. You can go even to Iran, where a lot of news is, 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 is covered uh, up. But there are sources today that are revealing that even in the, in the nation of Iran, where there still are Christians and where there are still Jews, a small number of Jews, but, for example, a, 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 a Jewish woman was, was killed and then cut in half for refusing to give her home to a, a, a mosque that was being built right next door. I 
a Christian pastor who, as I've mentioned many times, you know, Pastor Saeed, he's, he's, he's a Calvary Chapel pastor, actually came out of a Calvary Chapel church and still is imprisoned in Iran. And we hear nothing. He's an American. But we hear nothing of our own government going to, to, to do anything to, to get him out of that situation. Don't even get me started with a, the Marine that's in Mexico. Well, that's not as critical, prophetically speaking, nonetheless. It, it says something about us as a nation. So we cannot study the book of Revelation from the standpoint of just, well, it's just neat stuff to study, you know. I mean, we used to think about that, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, yeah, we could see certain things happening, but, but still, you know, it was, it was exciting. It's not about exciting. It's about truth. It's about eternity. It's about people giving their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even today. Christians being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the cross. So we can't take that lightly. And we can't act as if it's, we, you know, it's too far away. We're too detached. I think it's an amazing thing that we talk about the communication issue in the scriptures about, you know, we'll be able to see, everybody will be able to see Jesus because, you know, there's CNN and Fox News and everybody else with their cameras and they'll be able to see Jesus when he comes again. Okay, so we've got this communication. That communication is letting us know right now that we are not to be detached. Our hearts bear a tremendous burden for our brothers and sisters that are suffering. We can't take, we can't take that lightly. So as John is, is receiving these revelations from, from the Lord to be placed into the Word of God to reach us where we are today, I think we need to really take a, a serious look at these things. Now, I know that most of you have been taking a very serious look at everything that we've been studying in the book of Revelation from, from day one, which was a long time ago. I, I don't even remember when we started. And it was a long time ago. But I truly felt that the Lord wanted us to really dig deep in depth in this book because of what's going on today. And more and more, even as we come to the last few chapters that deal with the end of the tribulation period, that deal with the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years, though that seems so far away, it isn't. Because if the rapture of the church were to happen today, that would mean seven more years and then would come the, reign, the, reign, the, the millennial reign of Christ. 
We sit around talking with our families and we say, Oh, you know, so-and-so has been growing up in just a few years. By their, you know, they were this little, now they're in school, now they're in high school, now they're in college. Seven years is not a long time. And if we are seeing some of the things that are happening in the world today and seeing some of the, uh, the persecution that's taking place and all and it's reminding us this, it's going to be a whole lot worse in the next seven years or in the seven years that all of this is going to take place. Then we really need to change our perspective about the study of the Scriptures. Because it's speaking to us now. And even if we see what we see in this passage, and I want to go back to verse 1 for just a moment. And that's where we're going to start reading. So let's do that now. Because I could go on talking for another hour before I get back into this study. So let's do it now. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Did you see that? I'd really underline this verse. Because again, this isn't something that is going to happen. This is something that's already been happening. And by the way, for some of you may have been studying Scripture about 30 years ago, and we were studying the book of Revelation and all the stuff that were going on. We were wondering when the rapture was going to happen and all of that. And we were looking at stuff like this. You know, we used to have these visions that, that uh, you know, we were going to have the old uh, guillotine from the French Revolution out there. We don't need that to happen. You know Why? Because today we have the sword of Allah. And that's the vehicle that's driving these beheadings. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And if you remember when we studied that particular passage of Scripture when we are dealing with the Antichrist and all, and I said, you know, we need to take a new perspective about this. Not some kind of chip under the, under the wrist or on the hand or, or some, you know, tattoo on the head. I said, you know what, when you see the bands that the, the Islamic terrorists are wearing and all of that stuff that they have written on it and on their arms, and we show pictures of it, everything is Bismillah. Bismillah, you know what it is? In the name of Allah. In the name of Allah. In the name of Allah. That's why all of these killings are going on. That's why this particular religion that uh, uh, all of these uh, uh, politicians years and years ago at, 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 uh, at 9-11 were saying, oh, no, 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 those are just, those are just uh, extremist terrorists. I mean, you know, Islam is a peaceful religion. Is it? So they had not worshipped the beast or his image or had not received his... Mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the de- dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, I'm going to bring some clarity to that particular verse. There's a, some confusion in the reading here because you go back to verse 4 and it talks a little bit about those who reigned for a thousand years. But then, uh, well, anyway, I'll clear it up in just a moment. But 
this is not the first resurrection, so, so much uh, the, the phrase at the beginning. Uh, I'll, I'll clarify it in just a moment. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, in our initial study then of this chapter last week, we briefly examined the more common theological and eschatological positions, and those are just dollar fifty cent words, you know, that, that just mean, you know, our study of, of God and of the scriptures, and, and especially eschat, eschatology is a study of end times or end things. So we've examined the common theological and eschatological positions dealing with the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth after the great tribulation period in relation to the second coming of Jesus with his saints and to the validity and reliability. I have no idea why my pad here turns off. But it is to the validity and reliability and literalness of the thousand year period. We studied this last week. Now the position that we hold, I gave you three positions. The amillennial position, the postmillennial position, and the premillennial position. Uh, the amillennial position is one that believes a thousand years is really not a thousand years. It's just a very, uh, uh, you know, spiritual uh, kind of uh, just spiritualistic type of stuff. You know, just uh, doesn't really happen in a thousand years. It's just a spiritual number or whatever. Uh, but there is no millennium, in other words. There, there's not a millennial reign of Christ. In other words... Uh, Everything that the scripture says was going to happen at the end has already happened. I don't know where they get that from, but, you know, and, and we don't have time to go into it. We could, we could go into it. And then postmillennialism means that uh, uh, it isn't Jesus Christ is going to uh, bring in the, the kingdom age. We're going to bring the kingdom age in, or the church is going to bring the kingdom age in, and then Jesus will, will come at the end of that. So that's postmillennialism. Premillennialism, of course, is that Jesus is the one who comes at the beginning. After the tribulation period, he comes and he establishes this millennial reign for a thousand years. So we hold to this premillennial position. And this position affirms, as I just said, to a literal thousand year reign of Christ. Literally a thousand years from the throne of Jesus, where Jesus is going to reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. In other words, as I said last week, a thousand years means a thousand years. Now, we also observed last week a very interesting and ironic picture from verse 1 where an unnamed angel is called upon by the Lord to lay hold of the great enemy of our faith. In other words, it wasn't uh, you know, Gabriel or Michael, you know, as we know them to be named in the Scriptures. I mean, this was an unnamed angel. You would think, you know, well, you know, he has to be one with power. Any angel of God, when God is in control, any angel he sends is going to have more power than, than, than Satan, okay? That's the, import, that's, that's the important thing to learn here. So, he lays hold of the great enemy, enemy of our faith, the dragon, that old serpent, uh, who is the devil and Satan, to chain him and to cast him into the bottomless pit to bind him for a thousand years. And so, the, during the millennial reign of Christ, Satan will be bound, but we need to understand something. In that thousand year reign of Christ, there will be people on the earth, of course. We're going to talk a little bit about this next time because we're going to deal with, with uh, Gog and Magog and, and, and this, this battle that, uh, that Satan is wanting to have against God on the, on the earth. There will be people and there will be nations on the earth when Christ begins his reign of a thousand years 
on the earth. Everything is going to be as if back in the garden with this one exception. And that is that people, man will still have their heart. Man will have a heart and his flesh. And the heart of man and his flesh can and will still cause him to rebel against God, but not like we see today. Because in the kingdom age, if anyone gets out of line, the Lord will deal with them immediately as he rules and reigns. Because he's going to be on the earth. And he will deal immediately with any, any, any violation of the law, as it were. Now, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9 says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. This is Messiah in essence speaking. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And, and this is just responding to anything that happens outside of God's perfect will and, 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 and judgment. So, you know, judgment will come. He'll break them with a rod. He'll dash them to pieces if necessary. Not that he's going to do that to everybody, but this is what he'll do when he's ruling and reigning. He's going to be completely in authority, completely in charge of all things on the earth. Revelation 12, verse 5, if we go back there, where it talks about the woman that is supposed to be Israel and, and the dragon that was waiting for uh, this particular child. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and His throne. So we know who it is. It's Jesus Christ. Then in the last chapter, in Revelation 19, verse 15, again it mentions the rod of iron. It says, Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it it should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. But again, he will rule them with a rod of iron. So he will be the one who keeps law and order and peace in the thousand-year reign on the earth. Now, as I said last time, some people feel that, that Satan is bound already, having been defeated by the Lord Jesus at the cross of Calvary. And I said, yes, in effect, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to defeat Satan on the cross. And yet, the consummation of all of that has yet to be done. Now, those who are on this earth, as we go forth and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're trying to rescue people from the law of sin and death as, so, as, as the Lord saved us and rescued us. But Satan is still about roaring as, uh, uh, going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's still on the prowl. He's still affecting many people's lives today and still seeking those whom he might devour simply because he's not yet bound completely. The work's been done. And those who come to the cross of Christ will be affected by that work. Lives will be changed. Our hearts will be changed. We'll come alive. You know, we're going to read a a verse of Scripture in a little while that says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But we're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins if we come to Jesus because now we're alive in Christ.
And we know that, that Satan can do nothing unless the Lord allows and approves it, but maybe we can better understand these things by hearing this. Listen to this. According to doctors at the Good Samaritan Regional Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, rattlesnakes thought to be dead can still strike, bite, and kill you. I don't know if some of you, don't, some of you know that or not. But rattlesnakes, even dead, can still strike, bite, and kill you. Doctors in Phoenix said they have a large number of patients admitted each year suffering from bites from rattlers thought to be dead. Sometimes the snakes were shot at and their heads cut off, but the snake head retains a, ref, a reflex action. And one study showed that snake heads could still make striking type motions for up to 60 minutes after de- decapitation. So... Be careful out there if you're messing with snakes. Because they still, for an hour or so, retain that reflex action to bite. And of course, the venom is in their teeth, you know. So you see, Satan, that old serpent, was defeated at Calvary. In fact, his head was cut off. For we are told in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, listen to this. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of, of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The important thing is, verse 14, As much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And that's what he did on the cross but for a season he can still strike and he can still wound us he can still hurt he can still poison our relationships he can still spread his deadly venom into our lives and into our homes as well and yet the day is coming that he will be locked up in the abyss in the bottomless pit for as we're told in our text after a thousand After the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, Satan will be let loose for a little while. And we'll deal with that uh, shortly. Not Really not tonight. We're going to deal actually with that next week. So if you'll turn to verse 4 for just a moment, and let's go back to what we're going to cover tonight. Paul, uh, I'm I'm sorry, John said, And I saw thrones, and, and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now here is a group of whom it is written that they lived and they would live and reign with Christ for a thousand years, as John saw the vision. They occupy thrones. And the authority to judge is to be given to them. The question, of course, is... Who are they? Who are they? It is safe to say that 
they are all those who belong to the first resurrection. And we're going to talk a little bit about that first resurrection in just a moment. But we can safely say they all belong to the first resurrection. In general, those who sit on the thrones in heaven, they are the Old Testament saints, they are the saints of the church age, and they are the saints of the tribulation. Those who will occupy these thrones are the same as those in chapters 4 and 5, including those saints who suffered martyrdom or will suffer martyrdom under, uh, during the tribulation, and to those to whom our Lord, uh, our Lord spoke in Luke chapter 22. So if you turn to Luke 22, I want you to notice something. Now, this statement by Jesus was made at the Passover supper, the night that Jesus was taken and eventually taken to the cross. Notice then who he's speaking to. We all know, right? Speaking to the disciples. He says, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's also connect this with verse 5 and 6 of our text. So let's look at verses 5 and 6 of the text. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. I have to stop and say, we all should know by now that the original manuscript that was written, and many of the manuscripts following that which was written by John, None of them had verse markings. None, none of them had the, the, the verse numbers in the text. They were written as, as long letters, you know. So later on, when, when you know, as, as the word was being translated into other languages and stuff, uh, you know, the, the chapter and verse uh, numbers were, 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 were made. So uh, if you go back to verse 4, you, you realize that... Uh, uh, it's talking about those that are going to be sitting on thrones, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So that is in, in contrast to those that were going to be rising from the first resurrection. Then you see this is the first resurrection and continue it into the next part. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So you, you can't really tie that last phrase to the first part of verse 5. You have to, you know, it, 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 it skips, you know, that, that, that one thought there at the beginning of verse 5 is, is to say this is the contrast of those who actually are, are going to rise in the first resurrection. Then there are those who will not. And then this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such... The second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now the thrones that John saw, the, the thrones that John saw are judicial seats of royal authority. They aren't displayed for mere show. They're not there just, you know, just a kind of a superficial type thing you know these thrones no these are real thrones with real purpose behind them because those who sit on them are described in the passage as priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years 
They are priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's the end of verse 6. I think it's still up there. There it is. So they form Christ's royal priesthood. They form Christ's royal priesthood. Those whom he has made kings and priests. Who has he made kings and priests? Well, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you, speaking to the church. How many of you are in the church? I'm not talking about being in this building, okay? Remember the church of Jesus Christ is not about buildings. The church of Jesus Christ is about people. People who come to Christ. People who are new creations. People who have been born again of the Spirit of God. Are you in the church? Alright, so, gosh, this is the letters for you. But you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A royal priesthood. So kings and priests, that's a royal priesthood. Isn't that great? But we saw that back in Revelation chapter 1, some two and a half years ago. Remember Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Do you see what Christ has done for us? Now notice what he else he does. And he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's made us kings and priests. But there's more. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Do we know now who are the kings and the priests? Don't get all cocky now and get up and start walking like you got a crown on you. Are we wearing some kind of priestly vestments? No, no, no. There's time enough for that. Besides, if you get a crown, where's it going to end up? We're going to throw it at the feet of Jesus. Who's worthy, you see, as we just saw in verse 9. He's worthy to receive praise and honor and glory and power and all of our crowns and all of our trophies. And all of the things that we have accomplished in this life, it's because of Him. So going back to verse 4 of our text, John clearly says that judgment was given or committed unto them, to those on these thrones. And once God's saints were judged and persecuted by the world, because we have to come back to the context that he also mentions those who were persecuted, But once God's saints were judged and persecuted by the world and are so treated even now, as I mentioned before, but the day will come when the saints shall judge the world as as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Listen to what he says. Now, by the way, the context here in verse 1 is about going to other judges in the world to deal with issues between us and the church. But he says in verse 2 of that context, Do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And he's saying, listen, if you're a Christian and you have an ought against a brother, you need to come and you need to 
Take care of those things yourself. Don't take it to the world. Don't take it to the world's judgments. We have the Word of God that teaches us that we need to humble ourselves, that we need to die to ourselves, and that we need to consider others more highly than ourselves. We've got to get out of this, this selfish, worldly thing, you know, and realize that others are more important than us. But he says, you will judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Victory, of course, belongs to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet he will share it with his redeemed on the earth for a thousand years. And the same length of time that the devil will be bound, the saints will live gloriously. Remember the oldest man in the world? Methuselah. 969 years old. Never made it to a thousand years. But he was the one who lived the the longest. 969 years. Those who will reign with Christ... will live that thousand years gloriously. Let's go back to verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. All those mentioned in verse 4 will be raised from the dead at different stages. All those mentioned in verse 4 will be raised from the dead at different stages. And then take note that both verses 5 and 6 speak of the first resurrection, which is said in contrast to a second resurrection. If there's a first resurrection, don't you think there's going to be a second resurrection? Well, that's the implication here. If there is a first resurrection mentioned, that means there's going to be a second resurrection mentioned. So the first resurrection is a resurrection to everlasting life which includes saints only. Now, when I say saints, I'm talking about those who are set apart for God. That's just simply what a saint is. When you read the letters of Paul, he talks about the saints in this city and the saints in that city. You know, today uh, the the confusion can come to some people because in the Catholic Church, of course, they, they have to appoint saints that were dead, you know. But uh, the Bible tells us that saints are actually alive. You know, that means those are who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. Now, does that mean that you are without sin? I mean, hey, we're all sinners, right? I mean, that's the important thing that we need to remember. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. But we're set apart because the word saint has to mean something. It means that we're set apart unto the work of God in Christ. So, the saints are going to be in the first resurrection. At different stages and, and all, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But for, take, for example, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Because it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So, the first resurrection is about everlasting life. Because it is some that are going to have everlasting life and others that are going to have shame and everlasting contempt. <clears throat> now, 
The first resurrection is also called by Jesus the resurrection of the just. In Luke 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So if you're helping people, now, you know, it's interesting that sometimes people say, you know, if, uh, you know, you gotta go into this, 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 this concept or principle of, you know, sowing and, and reaping and blah, 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 and this and that, you know, so if you give a hundred here, you should get a thousand sometime during the, you know, the course of your life. Well, I don't know. Jesus said, you know, you can help people just because that's what you need to be doing and you're blessing them, especially those who can't repay you. You know when you're gonna get paid? At the resurrection of the just. So that's another name that Jesus gives to the first resurrection. But he also calls the first resurrection the resurrection of life. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So you see there is a resurrection of life, first resurrection, and the resurrection of condemnation, the second resurrection or a second resurrection. And then in the book of Hebrews, it is called a better resurrection. Hebrews 11, verse 35. Women received their dead raised again, uh, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So the resurrection of life, or the first resurrection, is a better resurrection. So the first resurrection takes place at different stages, as I said, but it includes all who are God's own. By the way, are you one of God's own? I hope, I really hope you are. I'm not asking that to, you know, be funny. I'm asking that because you know what? That's what's, what matters here. You've got to be God's own to partake of the first resurrection. And I want everybody in this room to be able to partake of the first resurrection because it's a resurrection of life. That's a better resurrection. And it's the resurrection of the just. So the first resurrection takes place at different stages. Uh, all such are said to be blessed and holy. Verse 6, right? Blessed and holy are those who partake of the first resurrection. Many have taken some of the verses now that we've read and mistakenly assumed that there is but one general resurrection and one general judgment for all mankind, saved and lost alike. But there is not the slightest implication, by the way, that both classes would be raised at the same time. It sounds like it, right? There'll be a resurrection unto life, a resurrection... Yeah. But it doesn't mean that they happen at the same time. This is what I'm saying. You can't imply that. In fact, verse 5 of our text is very clear. Between the two resurrections, between the two resurrections, there will be a space of one thousand years. May I read it to you again? But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Now, as for the order of those in the first resurrection, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He said, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now notice this. But each one 
in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So he talks about order. And there are at least three, possibly four different ranks connected with the first resurrection. Well, first of all, there is, of course, Christ's resurrection, because there has to be the first fruits of the resurrection. That's Jesus himself. So Christ is the first fruits of, our, of, of life and, and resurrection, so he's, his is the first. That's the order here. Secondly, there's the resurrection of the saints of the church age. When you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the, angel, I'm sorry, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that, of course, is the rapture of the church in in verse 17. And then thirdly, if the rapture of the church is as as we see it uh, described, then it it is a, a kind of resurrection, but it isn't a resurrection from the dead because you're taken... And, and your bodies are changed, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15 also. It talks about in a twinkling of an eye, you, you know, what, what was mortal becomes immortal, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, thirdly, there is the resurrection of the tribulation saints. We know that because of the earlier chapters of the book of Revelation. Not all Bible teachers now agree as to the time of the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. So this could be a fourth, you know, a fourth ranking. Uh, some believe that they are raised with the church saints. That's very possible. Uh, others believe that they are raised at the rapture. That's also very possible. Still others believe that they are raised at the very close of the tribulation. And that could also happen. But the important thing, you know, I mean, that's not a hot button issue here, so we don't have to worry about that. But the important thing is that they will be raised as part of the first resurrection. So resurrection in the first resurrection of all the saints will be in rank and order, as, as God has, has, has made that clear. But let's remember three things about this first resurrection. Let's remember three things about this first resurrection. It will be a resurrection of blessing. It will be a resurrection of blessing, as we've already seen. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he. So it will be a, a, a resurrection of blessing. Secondly, it will be a resurrection of power. Because we're told that over such, the second death has no power. The second death. We're not going to have to worry about a second death. Others will. Thirdly, It will be a resurrection of privilege. And all that goes back to what we talked about first of all. They shall be priests and kings of God and shall reign with him a thousand years. What a privilege that will be. And by the way, when when Jesus comes with ten thousands of his saints, as it says in the book of Jude, well, who do you think those are? 10,000 isn't a, this 10,000s of his saints, which is an innumerable number. For what reason? To come? For Jesus to enter into Jerusalem and 
establish his kingship on the throne of David and we will be with him. When you consider the rest of the dead in verse 5, these will not have part in the first resurrection. These will not have part in the first resurrection and so they are not blessed. They will be under the power of the second death and they are without privilege. And that's sad. In some descriptions in Scripture, you're, you're told that uh, they, they, all that they have that is of privilege and of honor and of blessing for them is on this earth. Whatever they accomplish, it's all here. And yet Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, says, but yet it's all vanity. Because once you die, who do you give it to? I mean, you can pass it on. But eventually, what, you can't take it with you, in other words. You see, I want you to realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, you have something to take with you. You may not have the riches of this world. That's all right. You may not have all the things that you've ever wanted in this life. Maybe you've accomplished some of those things, but maybe you don't have all the things that you want. That's okay. Because you can't take those things with you. What you can take with you is the blessing of eternal life. Because you see, if, if, you, if you leave this earth without the things of this earth, it's okay because you have already put your treasures where? In heaven. Store up your treasures, Jesus said. In heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart's a treasure to God. You are a treasure to God. This is how much He loves you and this is the, the, the reason why I'm emphasizing all of this stuff about what's happening today because He loves you this much to give you this much love and to give you this much life that never ends. But we've got to talk about the second death. It actually means a second kind of death. There are two kinds of death. There's physical death, obviously, and spiritual death. Both of them were brought into this world by that old serpent in Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent tempted Eve and Adam said nothing and partook with Eve of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God gave a very clear warning. He said, on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will begin to die. 
I know that the text says you will surely die. In the Hebrew it says you will begin to die. You will die spiritually immediately. But eventually you will die physically. The first death was spiritual. So we all know the general idea of physical death. It is the moment when the body dies and is vacated by the spiritual part of man. But spiritual death is quite different. The spiritual part of man never sleeps nor becomes unconscious. And so spiritual death means alienation from the life of God. First and foremost, spiritual death means alienation from the life of God. When Paul is describing to the church in Ephesus the walk of the Gentiles, that because many, many of them were Gentiles and many of them walked as Gentiles walked, as you would read probably in verse 17 of chapter 4. In verse 18 he says, when he speaks of the Gentiles in their walk, he says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated, notice, being alienated from the life of God. That's spiritual death. Being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Now a couple of chapters previous to this, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul begins that great chapter with this statement. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So already he's described the fact that they were dead before they came to Jesus Christ. But he made them alive who were at one time dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead spiritually. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. It is the state of every unbeliever. And when the believer receives Jesus Christ by faith, now we're getting into the basics, the fundamentals. But hey, we always need to stay close to them. When the unbeliever receives Jesus Christ by faith, he is born again and thereby receives the life of God. He's born again and receives therefore the life of God. You all know this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's clear. Doesn't take a lot to interpret that in many different ways. It's one way to interpret it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish in spiritual death, in the second death, but have everlasting 
life. John 5, 24. This is another verse of Scripture that we should underline and learn and memorize as, as, as something that we are to share with other people when we share John 3.16. Share this as well, John 5.24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Jesus said, if you believe my Father, because my Father sent me. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Passed from death into life. And you have, to, you have to consider, even if we as Christians die physically, we continue to live spiritually in Christ. So this is more speaking of death into life from the spiritual standpoint than just physical even though the physical is important, because we only will die once. But we stay alive forever with Christ. That's everlasting life. But there's more to learn and more to memorize with John 3.16 and John 5.24. It's 1 John 5.12 and 13 where John again now writes to the church and he says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now that's written this way. John was a very old man, but he wrote very simply to every simple young person, every growing person and every mature person would understand. He who has Jesus has life. He who does not have Jesus does not have life. Simple and clear. But notice the next thing. These things, the next verse, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, you already believe, but I'm telling you now, you need to know that you have eternal life. Not take it for granted. You need to know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That's a very strong statement he closes in this passage here that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It isn't about having a, 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 a partial or, or temporary spiritual experience or, uh, you know, a little bit of a stirring, uh, emotional stirring of the heart. At a, at a crusade or at a church service or anything like that. It is something that you will know, that you will know, that you know, that you know, that you know. And then you never stop learning that you know it. And you continue in it. No matter what you go through, no matter what trials you face, you know that you have eternal life. There's no question about it. There's no worries about it. You know. This isn't an issue of arrogance. It is an issue of humility, humbling ourselves to the God who has saved us and living that life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I just ran out of notes. 
And I can tell you this, Revelation has been and continues to be a great, great adventure. And the story isn't over and it isn't finished. I think we have enough tonight to chew on. I think there are things that we need to really ask ourselves if we don't know, if we're not sure. But I'm going to tell you, don't stick your head in the sand with what's happening in the world. Anybody ever see uh, O'Reilly on, on Fox News? And he has that little segment with with Waters World, that guy goes out and interviews people and, and, and just asks them questions about what's going on in the government. And, and, and he mostly asks young people and they're on the beach, you know, and sunning and sanding and sanding and whatever else going on out there. And, and, and they ask them just simple questions about who's in charge or who's in, you know, uh, who's the vice president, who's the secretary of state, who's the secretary of defense, and blah, blah, blah. I don't know these things. It makes you wonder about this country, where we are. We were fifth graders and we knew all of those answers. Now, I hate to say it, but that was geez, 50 years ago for some of us. What's happened to our education system? What's happening in our country? And we stick our heads in the sand and don't realize that on the other side of the world, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, are being persecuted and they're being martyred for the faith. Do you pray for these brothers and sisters who are alive and fleeing? You know that today there in Iraq, Christians are being told, you either convert or you pay or you die. And that's, that's, that's false. The pain part doesn't matter. You either convert or you die. That's real. And that's who some people today are trying to protect, you know. A religion of peace or a religion of the sword. And they're not making any bones about it. ISIS is on Twitter. All those pictures, some of you may have seen them already, of beheadings. I saw some today. They're doing social media. And they're killing our brothers and sisters. It should pain our hearts to pray for them. And Israel, I, you know, we spend time talking a lot about Israel. God's got them in His hands. But still, what's happening is leading us to everything we've studied so far. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Because at any moment, He can come. I just want you to be serious. And I want you to be ready. Enjoy the blessings that God has given you. But always remember, someone suffering for the faith. There are brothers and sisters. They're part of us. Let's pray.